Welcome to Not A Christian Podcast. It's not a Christian podcast. It's a podcast that just happens to be Christian. In this podcast, we tell stories, we talk about life, faith, and pretty much anything else you can imagine. Now let's jump into it. Welcome back to the show. It's Not a Christian Podcast, episode 41, right here on Friday, July the 30th. And today we are making history. This is a first in the history of Not a Christian Podcast because I am recording this episode. Actually, I don't know that to be true. It might have happened over the Christmas holidays. I'm not sure. But for the first time in a long time. But that doesn't sound as dramatic as for the first time ever. No, it is for, for, for sure the first time ever. It, it's, this is the first time this has ever happened. I'm recording two episodes in one day. This is the second of two, fortunately, so I'm almost done. I had to record episode 40 earlier in the day, and now, yeah, the time of recording, it's Thursday, July 22nd, coming up on 9.30 p.m. So, we're recording this episode because I've got staff training for my work all next week, and there just won't be a time between now and then, or then and now however you prefer to view it, to, to record a new episode of the show. So so I'm doing this a week in advance, so if there are any earth-shattering events that happen between now and next Friday, and the day of upload here, and I don't address it on the show, that's why. It's because because I'm recording this one way in advance. Last week, we, we had fun. We announced the winner of what you guys voted to be the best fast food item, uh, Ty also won the bracket challenge, so congratulations to him. As soon as he gets to me, and because he at the time of recording this, he doesn't even know yet. The episode's not even out. He doesn't know he won the tournament. But when he gets to me and lets me know which gift card he chose, I know you guys are all waiting, but I'll, I'll, I'll let you know that as well. But we're sitting down. We're recording this episode more than a week in advance. I hope the Kanye album is good. I, you know, because that one, that one's not out yet. That's just a couple hours away at the time of recording. So there's just so much that's going to occur over this next week that we're going to have to wait a while to, to talk about. But I went to Enchanted Rock on a camping trip a couple weeks ago now. If you've never been to Enchanted Rock, it's near Fredericksburg, Texas. I went on a field trip when I was in like eighth grade, and I've always been like, yeah, I need to go back there. I want to go back there. Finally, I went back, and Enchanted Rock is just this giant granite dome that is just kind of out there and so I was there for three nights and each night I went up on the dome and it was a lot it was a lot of fun uh so the first time I went in eighth grade I remember it you know because I was like an eighth grader I guess I remember it being like huge and a pretty hard climb pretty hard to hike so I was expecting it to be be pretty tough this time but then uh I got there went up and it really wasn't that bad at all so I was kind of surprised when I got to the top and and it really wasn't that bad. It was pretty steep. Uh, it was a pretty steep climb. But I've, I've definitely done a lot lot more difficult hikes. It was funny because at the bottom, uh, before I went up, there was this, this lady and her child who was probably like seven, six years old. Kid was like super excited to go up. Mom was at the bottom. And let's just, I don't want to get canceled. So I'll just say that she did not look like a hiker. <laughs> let's just... Leave it at that. She did not look like someone who partook in, in hikes or physical exercise very often. Uh, so she was, you could tell she was like hesitant because there was a little bit of a, 
little bit of a hike to get kind of to the base of the mountain. Uh, and you could tell she was already not having a good time. And her kid was super excited to get up to the top. And, and the toughest part of the climb was still to come. So she, this lady was, was at the bottom and she looks up at the top. You could tell like she did not want to be here, did not want to be doing this. And she was just like, what is even up there? <laughs> Which struck me as really funny because like, I don't know, lady, it's nature. It's, it's a hill. Like, what do you expect to be up there? You know, she was just trying to justify like, ah, if I don't go, I won't be missing out on anything. And so I obviously passed them because they were going at a snail's pace. And I made it to the top in probably like, I don't know, 15 minutes, maybe. And so, like I said, I was pleasantly surprised how not that difficult it was. Uh, and I enjoyed the views at the top. Never saw that lady and her kid at the top, so I'm not sure if they made it. First thing I did when I got there, because I did a little research ahead of time, because when I go to these places, I want to know, like, the coolest spots. You know, what are the spots that aren't on the trail map? What are the spots that not everybody knows about? So I did some research ahead of time, and I found out there were some caves at the top and they weren't like super intuitive like you weren't just gonna see you know there weren't signs leading to them you weren't just gonna see a cave opening and be like hey I can go in there so I found out how to get to the cave uh watched a YouTube video on how to get in there and it starts you have to kind of go in these boulders and then there's a spot where you have to kind of lower yourself down into the opening of the cave so I did and I went in there and pretty quick, it got, you know, completely dark to where it's like you need a flashlight. And I took, I took a headlamp and a flashlight with me because I knew uh, ahead of time that's what I was going to need. And let me just tell you, I'm not a very claustrophobic person. And I definitely consider myself to be a pretty adventurous guy. I don't really back down from things, especially like hikes and, and stuff like that. But once I got pretty far into that cave and you know you can only see, like if you turn off your your flashlight you can't see a thing it is like absolute pitch black it's not like being you know in a dark bedroom at night where there's a little light creeping in it was pitch black and there were spots in this cave where you had to literally just squeeze through spaces just a little bit bigger than your body uh like get on your stomach and crawl and there were some places to where it's like you had to kind of slide down a little steep part so if you decided you wanted to turn back like it was too late there was no turning back and then kind of it took me about 20-25 minutes to get all the way through so it wasn't like a small cave you know it took a while to kind of work your way through this cave system and there was one point I was getting near the end and I thought I came across like a dead end and I knew other people had done this before. In fact, there were like some arrows and stuff painted on the walls to show you where to go. But there was this one point where I thought I was at a dead end. And I was just like, okay, I can either turn back and try to, you know, try to climb back up some of those places I climbed in. Or I can just sit here and try to find the exit. And it was one of those moments. And I don't, like I said, I'm a pretty adventurous guy. Don't get freaked out too easily. Don't get claustrophobic. But it was one of those moments where it's like I kind of had to make a choice where like you can either like internally freak out right now or you can just settle down, find the exit and crawl out. So that's what I did. I chose to just calm down. <laughs> it was, you know, it was a conscious choice to make that I had to make in order to find my way out of these caves. And so I did. And then pretty soon 
you know, I thought I saw some daylight up ahead, so I turned off my light, and sure enough, there was some light creeping in. Uh, and I crawled out of the cave, and like I said, it took 20 to 25 minutes to get through. Definitely an adventure. So, by this time, the sun is probably about 30 minutes from setting. It's probably about 8 o'clock. So I decided to work my way back up to the top of the hill, the top of the mountain or the dome or whatever you want to call it, and watch the sunset from up there. And then as soon as the sun hits the horizon, I see this dude walking up. And he's got like some, some camera gear and whatnot. And he's like, you can tell he's in a hurry because he can see the sun's going down. And so he sets up his camera, just takes like a couple pictures of the sun going down, and then it's like behind the horizon. And I looked at him and said, you got here just in time, obviously being sarcastic. Uh, and you could tell like he had, he'd been hurrying up the mountain. Uh, and then he was, and then like he started talking about like, what he was actually doing there and he wasn't there to take pictures of the sunset but he was an astrophotographer took pictures of the stars which is pretty cool so he's like yeah I'll, i might be up here till like midnight so if you want to stay you can and you know i was camping in the park this dude this guy drove from austin uh just just to be there to take pictures of the night sky so i was like you know i'm camping here i don't have anything else to do so I'll stick around for a bit. And so, like, we started talking. He was actually from Wisconsin. His name's Lacho, which is pretty cool. Originally Bulgarian. Lacho actually added me on Facebook afterwards. So, Lacho might be listening to this episode right now. I don't know. Uh, but shout out to you, Lacho, if you are. Had a good time meeting you at Enchanted Rock. And anyway, so we're sitting there. He's from Wisconsin. Just moved to Austin. Uh, like three weeks before, so of course I gave him the text, said, welcome to Texas. Uh, we talked about, you know, the, the best place in Texas to view the stars, obviously closer to where I live. Uh, and then, as we're talking, another guy that was up there, kind of, I don't know, 15, 20 yards away from us, he looks, he said, you guys said you're going to be up here till midnight? And we're just like, yeah. And so he comes over, he's like, you, you mind if I sit with y'all? We're like, yeah, why not? So his name is Jason. Jason lives in Fredericksburg, which is just like right down the road from Enchanted Rock. He was also there just for the day. So anyway, the sun goes down. It's starting to get dark. Lacho is, has got his camera, and he's, he's ready to take pictures of the stars. And apparently, if you're going to take long exposure pictures of the stars or the sky, wind is not good. So we decided to leave the peak and go down to this little outcropping where the, where the wind would be blocked. And then that's where he decided he was going to take some some pictures and it turns out he forgot a piece of his camera mount or a part i don't know i don't know anything about photography <laughs> or camera parts or setups or anything so he couldn't end up doing that so you know we we, we kind of hung out for a bit and then decided i don't know 10 30 or so to start making our way down the mountain and before we did that, we noticed like this flat, this person with a flashlight going back and forth, walking around. And then as we're going down, and at, at one point we thought we heard him like call out to us, but we weren't sure. Uh, so, but as we're going down, we come across this person. And it's a guy probably in his early 20s who walks up to us and says, hey, I'm a little lost right now. Can I just walk down with you guys? And we're like, oh, yeah, sure, come on. So he was like, this dude was like really sweaty, by the way. Like you could tell he'd been like walking around for a while trying to find his way off this mountain. And he was like clutching this map, this trail map in his hand. And he told us, he was like, yeah, I've been up to the summit and back down here like three times trying to find my way off this mountain. 
So I'm just like, okay, first of all, I don't say this to him, but I'm thinking in my mind, if I'm trying to get off a mountain, I'm not going to go back up to the summit, if that makes sense. But, you know, he was he was lost, so we're like, yeah, yeah, you can come down with us. And then as we're making our way down, me and my two new friends and this other dude that was lost on the mountain, uh, you know, we're talking a little bit. Jason asked the dude, like, hey, do you have enough water? Like, he's like, and the guy's like, yeah, yeah, I have, I have enough water. I just, uh, I just need to find my way back down. And then Jason asked, like, hey, was that you that called out to us earlier? And the guy said, to be honest, man, I don't know. My brain's a little fried right now, which was interesting. And then Jason said something, and this guy said this at the same time. So I'm not sure if anyone else that was there heard the, the lost guy say this. But the lost guy said, I'm actually pretty high right now. <laughs> so all of a sudden, it made a lot more sense that this guy was lost on this mountain. Uh, and his solution to getting off the mountain was to go to the top of the mountain three times. <laughs> so anyway... Uh, now we're, we're a mountain rescue team, you know, the, a group of three friends who just happened to meet at the top of Enchanted Rock. We're now escorting this guy on drugs down the mountain. Uh, and after he said that, after he said he was high, you, you know, it definitely, you could tell <laughs> he was, he was for sure not in his right mind, not in a sober state, uh, just kind of the glaze in his eyes and the way he was talking and walking was just, you know. It was just a little different. So uh, we made it back down the mountain. That guy made it off to his campsite, uh, and we all parted ways. So uh, glad to have made new friends at Enchanted Rock. I had a really great time on the camping trip. Uh, if you've never been to Enchanted Rock, especially if you live in Texas, I would highly recommend it. So that was the story about when I went camping at Enchanted Rock. I hope you found part of it enjoyable. Just to give you a little roadmap of where we're going, we're going to be talking more in our eschatology series today, so the study on the end times and the last things. So we're, we're, we're continuing on in our summer series talking about all things eschatology. Hope you can stay for the whole thing. Let's go ahead and jump into the first segment. So if you've not been here the past few weeks, let me just say I highly encourage you to go back and listen to the beginning of the Eschatology series. Uh, go and listen to every episode we've done so far before you listen to this. Not that it wouldn't be valuable, but there may be some terminology and just kind of some things we've been building up to up to this point that, that would be valuable for you to know. Episode 34 that came out on June 4th is the first episode we talked about eschatology. So episodes 34, 35, 36, 37, and 39 are all of our eschatology videos. We skipped a couple times but to focus more on the summer bracket. Uh, but we're back talking about eschatology. And if you needed some review, we've talked about premillennialism, postmillennialism, and amillennialism all of those have to do with how do we interpret the thousand-year reign that the book of Revelation sets out. Uh, the, the, sometime around this thousand-year reign, Jesus is going to come back. And a premillennial would say that Jesus is going to come back and then the thousand years is going to happen. A postmillennial will say the thousand years is going to happen and Jesus is going to come back afterwards. And amillennialism says that we are in the millennium right now and then it's not a literal 1,000 years but a figurative 1,000 years. Of course, we spend like an entire 
episode on each one of these. So if that wasn't clear enough for you, go back and listen to those episodes. We'll clear it up. Then in one episode of the show, we, we did a deep dive into 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we asked the question, is the rapture biblical? And then on the most recent eschatology episode, I kind of went into detail on why I choose the amillennial position. Uh, there's just a variety of reasons, both in scripture and within reason, uh, and the, the fact that, that amillennialism seems to read the book of Revelation in the most clear, concise, and, and sensible way. Uh, so so in, in that episode, two episodes ago, episode 39, I kind of lay out why I choose the, the eschatological position that I do. So, like I said, it's going to be very important for our discussion today. Go ahead and listen to those episodes before you listen to this one. But as for today, we're going to talk a little bit more about eschatology, kind of what what does it mean, what are the practical implications, and, and why does it matter that we study eschatology. So, we hear the phrase, or see the phrase, Jesus is coming, uh, Jesus is coming back. Jesus will come again. And the thing is, we always say that phrase with a great amount of confidence, yet at the same time, it's shrouded in a lot of mystery. And I've said this on the show before, and I can't emphasize it enough, that it was not until fairly recently that the phrase, Jesus is coming, conjured up the particular images in our head that it does. So when we say Jesus is coming, we see maybe Jesus shooting out of the sky. Maybe we see believers and Christians being sucked up and raptured into the sky. Maybe we view Satan running around with demons. We view fire and hell and brimstone coming to earth to rule and to reign for a temporary period. But like I said, that stuff hasn't really happened in in the conversation around eschatology, in the conversation around end times until fairly recently. There was a guy named J.N. Darby who popularized this view in the 1800s when he came up with the seven dispensations that dispensationalism holds to. And once again, if you don't want to know what dispensation, dispensationalism means, go back and listen to one of the previous episodes, the premillennial episode. Uh, so the, the obsession with the end times and the second coming of Jesus is a phenomenon that has come about really in the past 200 years alone almost, well not exclusively, but it's definitely been a movement that's been spearheaded in the United States. And you may ask, why is it important? How does it play out? Well, I can tell you one time I was sitting in a church service, I won't tell you where it was, and the pastor was obviously a premillennial dispensationalist because of what he said. He said this, he said, we don't need to worry about climate change because the Bible very clearly says that we have at least 1,000 more years on this earth starting at the point where Jesus comes back. So if Jesus came back today, the earth will survive for 1,000 more years. And then he said Christians won't even be around for that 1,000 years, so it doesn't really matter what we do with the earth. So whether you believe in climate change or not, that's not what this is about. Basically, what that pastor was saying was that because Jesus is going to come back and take all the believers away from this earth, that the earth doesn't matter. What happens here is, in the grand scheme of things, ultimately meaningless and has really no bearing on the way we should live and treat the world and treat each other. 
So there's this attitude, this prevailing attitude in American Christianity that the world is doomed to be destroyed uh, while we get sucked away to heaven someday. So why even worry about what's going on? So the, when we think about eschatology, it's often painted as a scary and apocalyptic end-of-the-world scenario type of way. And we kind of view it as, as far away, but the earliest Christians, they actually expected Jesus' return to happen in their lifetimes, and they were mostly unbothered by it. So there, there wasn't those scary images that popped up into their heads when they thought about the end times. Because to them, to the early Christians in the first and second century in particular, it wasn't about the end of the world when Jesus came back, but when Jesus did return, it was going to be a drastic reordering of the way the world works. It was going to be a time in which the order was going to be restored by God here on this earth. It was going to be a time when sin was defeated, justice was restored, and the earth was healed. And that stands in stark contrast with kind of the way we view end times, of when Jesus comes back, everything's just going to be destroyed, right? The earth is going to do away with it. All the non-believers do away with them. Take the, the disembodied believers and their spirits to a different place. So, so we've got this, this dichotomy, this antithesis that's been set up really with what the early church believed and with what we as the American Western church believe. So we've got destruction versus healing. We've got abandonment versus restoration. And we've got condemnation versus redemption. And which one of those, of the choice in each one of those, those dichotomies, sounds more like the biblical God? Which ones more accurately echo the words in the Lord's Prayer, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? I think healing rings more true to the biblical story than destruction. I think restoration of the earth supersedes abandonment of the earth. I think the redemption of the world is put in place above the condemnation of the world. Now, I'm not saying that there's going to be no such thing as, as judgment. I'm not saying there's no such thing as hell and eternal punishment for those who don't choose God. But what I am saying is that, that this earth is, is very important. The earth is going to be remade rather than destroyed. If you've listened to the show very much before, you know I really like a scholar named N.T. Wright. He's my favorite author. I'll read, try to read him as often as I can. And he argues, and he says that Jesus actually never mentions his own second coming. And there are a couple of ways in which this may be refuted. First of all, someone might point to Mark chapter 13, verses 26 and 27. And this is Jesus speaking, and he says, And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. And of course, in that passage, he's referencing the Old Testament passage Daniel 7, 13, and 14, which reads this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So 
we've got this this passage in Mark where Jesus is referring to himself as the Son of Man, and he's referencing that prophecy in Daniel seven thirteen. That and and a lot of people would read that Daniel seven thirteen passage as oh this is a prophecy about the return of Jesus. But what N T Wright argues, and and many other scholars, it's not just an N T Wright thing, but what what many scholars would say, and I would encourage you to sit down with these two passages later and really focus on them so you can see what what I'm saying here. What some scholars say is that that Daniel 7 passage was fulfilled when Jesus came because 7.13, the Son of Man verse, is what we often pay attention to. But what does verse 14 say? It says, And to him, this Son of Man, was given dominion, glory, and the kingdom, and every, every nation will serve him uh, in this everlasting dominion which will not pass away. What does the Bible tell us? Where does the Bible tell us that Jesus is now? He is in the heavenly places. Ephesians 1 says that Jesus is far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked. So the the Daniel 7 passage came to fruition. That prophecy was fulfilled when Jesus was enthroned. When was Jesus enthroned? When he ascended to heaven at the end of the Gospels. So when Jesus is talking about that, you know, he's, he's referring to uh, himself as the Son of Man in, in chapter 13 of Mark's Gospel, he's saying this is currently being fulfilled. It will be fulfilled when I ascend to heaven and assume authority over all the earth. He's not necessarily talking about when he comes back. Like I said, this is just a, this is a brand new idea for me. I'm not, I'm not going to die on this hill just yet, but it's just something interesting that I've been thinking about lately, and I hope it gives you something to think about as well. And there's also in the Gospels, there are parables about kings and, and masters who go away and, and they leave their subjects to be faithful with their money while they're gone. And a lot of people will interpret these as prophecy of sorts or a foreshadowing of Jesus' going away and returning. However, they were more likely to have meant something to the people that Jesus was talking to. They were more likely referring to his first coming when he came to judge and to be the salvation that God had always said he would do. Because God was quote-unquote absent during the times before Jesus. And I say quote-unquote because he wasn't literally absent, but he had not yet come to deliver salvation and judgment. So so all these parables about the kings that go away were also likely fulfilled or referring to the time before Jesus. And when Jesus came the first time was when the king was quote unquote returning. So Jesus really doesn't say that much, if anything at all, about his second coming. However, just because Jesus didn't teach about something doesn't mean that it's not true. That's what we call like red letterism. That's, you see a lot of that, especially like in, a, in the more progressive movements. They say, oh, well, Jesus never spoke about this. Jesus never taught about this. Sure, the Bible does in other places, but Jesus never did. So therefore, it must not be important. Therefore, the, the rest of the scriptures are invalidated. Uh, can I just say that's like a very uh, ignorant way to read the scriptures? Because if you're a Christian, you, you accept and value and treasure the entire counsel of Scripture. Even if Jesus didn't directly say it and it got recorded in Scripture, uh, if it's in the Bible, it's in the Bible and it's important. And it's not superseded by the fact that Jesus didn't talk about something. But anyways, we can go on and on about that. 
Uh, But the second coming, while Jesus didn't necessarily teach about it himself, it's present in several other places in the New Testament. And in fact, Paul talks about it quite extensively. Back in the episode about the rapture, we brought up a Greek word, and we're going to be using that word again today, and that word is parousia. Now, the word parousia is one of those words that has gotten kind of wrapped up in Christian scholarship, and and in scholarship when it's used, it's almost exclusively talking about the coming of Jesus. However, it was just kind of a common casual word in the days of the first century, even in the non-Christian world. The first meaning it had was like this presence of divinity when a when gods or the power of a god, any of the pagan gods, was revealed in particularly in an act of healing. So people would become aware of a supernatural presence. The spirit of God or the spirit of a god was there. But the second meaning of parousia in its day, the coming, the second meaning of it wasn't necessarily related to, to God or the divine at all. It was when a person of high rank or of high status makes a visit to a state within their rule. So when a king would come to visit a a part of his kingdom, parousia, the coming, indicated a royal presence. So when people heard the word parousia in the first century, there was this connotation, this image in their head of royalty. Now, N.T. Wright, once again, he says this, and I'm quoting this out of a book of his called Surprised by Hope, which may be my favorite book of all time. I would highly encourage you to go read it. It talks kind of all about this stuff. In fact, it's where I'm getting a lot of my material uh, from today's episode. Uh, Just full disclosure there. But N.T. Wright says this in Surprised by Hope. He says, now suppose that Paul, and for that matter, the rest of the early church wanted to say two things. Suppose they wanted to say first that the Jesus they worshipped was near in spirit but absent in body and that one day he would be present in body and that then the whole world, themselves included, would know the sudden transforming power of that presence. A natural word to use for this would be parousia. So so Paul and the rest of the, the, the gospel authors or the biblical authors, they knew that there was something, there's this royal air about Jesus that the whole world may not have necessarily known. So they used the word parousia to refer to the return of someone with royal stature. So they said, well, this is a really good metaphor because just like someone of royal stature, a king or an emperor, Caesar, whoever, is going to come into a place and we use the word parousia, well, Jesus, who is a king, who is of royal stature, is going to come back. So therefore, we'll just adopt this word parousia. So at that time, they wanted to say that Jesus, who had been raised from the dead, he's currently at God's right hand. He's the rightful Lord of the world. He is the true emperor. He's one day going to come back into his kingdom. The word parousia was just a natural fit. So that's what was meant by coming. So when Paul talks about the coming of Christ, a lot of times, you know, in in our language and in our minds and in our culture, when we hear the coming of Christ, it doesn't conjure up that, that royal connotation like it did back in Paul's day. So also by using this word, they were trying to assert that Jesus is the Lord of all. He is the king. He is the emperor. And at that time, 
a lot of people believed that the emperor or the king of a nation was divine. A lot of pagans believed that. Rome believed that, that just because a king such as, as Constantine was on the throne, he was automatically divine. He was automatically a god, automatically worshipped. So so we, we talked about First Thessalonians chapter 4 in the rapture episode, about how a, a bad reading of that would, would lead us to believe that the rapture is a biblical doctrine. So let's go ahead and look at a couple of other passages that we have to kind of consolidate in order to, to really kind of fine-tune our eschatological position. So first is going to be 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 and 52. I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. So so this is referring to the same event. This is the same author as 1 Thessalonians 4. It's, it's both Paul speaking, and they're pretty obviously referring to the same event, this second coming of Christ, because there's like this trumpet blast, there's this raising of the dead. So they're talking about a similar, the same event. A bad reading of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 will say that believers will simply be taken away, while 1 Corinthians chapter 15 talks about them being transformed, not taken away and turned into something else, but transformed as they are now. So you can't say that 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 teaches the rapture and 1 Corinthians chapter 15 teaches transformation because those two things are are in stark contrast to each other. They, they can't exist at the same time. Philippians chapter 3 verse 20 and 21 say, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So once again, when Jesus comes back, there's going to be a transformation of the body, right? Not just a taking away of the body, not ditching the body and just taking our spirits to heaven in a disembodied state, in a purely spiritual state, but our citizenship, which is in heaven, is going to look a lot like the earth. So, there's three passages here. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 1 Corinthians 15, and Philippians 3. Philippians and Corinthians, I don't think there's really much question as to what those teach. A transformed body. The body isn't going to be transformed if it's just taken away to another place. Paul more often talks about transformation than he does rapture. In fact, he doesn't talk about the rapture at all. We talked about this a few episodes ago in the rapture episode. We either have to reconcile these passages with each other or to admit that there's stark contradictions in each one. And, and I don't know about you, but if the, the, the Bible has contradictions in it that are that stark, I don't know if it can be trusted. So, so the natural conclusion for me is that 1 Thessalonians doesn't teach about a rapture. It teaches about this royal metaphor. The king is returning to the city to make things right not to destroy it, not to take people elsewhere. That's a borderline Gnostic principle. And go back and listen to episode 24 if you want to know what Gnosticism is. In short, it's an ancient heresy that's kind of intertwined in a lot of ways with, with rapture theology. So, so kind of to, to transition the conversation here, there's we have to ask the question, is this an important doctrine? Is eschatology important? 
you know, the other day when when I when we did the Rapture episode, I ran an ad on Instagram, which basically means that uh, it shows up on the feed of people who who aren't following Not a Christian podcast. I don't do that every week. I've done it three or four times in the history of the show. Uh, so, and I got a comment on there when when I posted that. It was from someone who was who I was not following, was not following the podcast. And they, they said, you know, and, and the thumbnail just asked the question, is the rapture biblical? And they said something to the degree of, and I don't have it in front of me, but basically that, well, if you want to just waste your time thinking about something that doesn't matter, then go for it. And my conviction is that there is no doctrine that is unimportant. And, and my response to that person was that basically that is that theology basically is the way we view God. If we have a good, healthy theology, we are going to view God as he is. If we have bad theology, if we view God as what he isn't, or if we have beliefs about God that are not true, then that says that the God we worship isn't the one true God. And we can get things wrong, and that's okay to a certain degree. So if we're not willing to ask questions, to probe deep into theological topics, that means our pursuit of the truth is shallow, therefore our pursuit of Jesus is shallow as well. The way we we view these things, even eschatology, it has an impact on the way we do evangelism, discipleship, it has an impact on the way we share the gospel with the world around us. And I've learned that, that social media comments are like just a toxic place because it kind of went on, this person just kind of kept pushing and you know making you know thing making uh, arguments that were not valid uh just kept like asking me questions that I'd already addressed in the podcast episode so in the end I just said hope you listen to the show but but to say that that a theological position doesn't matter that we can just ignore the the topic of eschatology because uh everything will just be okay in the end I don't think that's being a responsible steward of the minds and the, the task that God has given us, because it does influence our evangelism. The way we view eschatology, the way we view the end times, impacts the way we do evangelism. Because evangelism, maybe more than any other word in the Christian dialect, conjures up all kinds of images. Maybe some people view bullying, or stirring up, or instigating, or debating, or arguing, or colonizing, it's dehumanizing, it's dismissive, it's invasive. Some people, even Christians, are scared of the word evangelism. It's, it's a political word, too, is that you shouldn't evangelize people who believe differently than you. The gospel, however, in its purest and most accurate definition, it doesn't offer these things. It's not a stirring up of things. It's not a debate. It's not dehumanizing. It's not something to be scared of. It's not something political. The gospel, in its purest form, its most accurate definition, it's not like this new religious experience. The gospel isn't threatening someone with hell. The gospel isn't saying, accept this or you'll be left behind the rapture. The gospel isn't, hey, you should repeat this prayer. It's not raise your hand during this time of the service. It's not come up to the altar. It's not raising your hands the highest in worship. It's not fill out this card. It's not joining our church. It's not attaching a label or denomination to yourself. It's not about getting baptized. The gospel is not partaking in communion. It's not read your Bible every day or pray before every meal. It isn't changing your Instagram bio. It isn't about who you vote for. It's not about your public image. The gospel is 
not limited to any one of these things. The gospel is a statement of the royalty of Jesus and that everything that needs to be done for the salvation of the individual has already been done. Evil has been vanquished and we are living in a new world ruled by the King of Kings, King Jesus. And when we think about evangelism, we think, what gets you excited? Do you get excited when you hear the word evangelism? Or do you get scared? Do you roll your eyes? Do you get confused? I think about what gets me excited when I think about, there are times in my life I am super excited about evangelism. But to be honest, sometimes that excitement fades. Sometimes we're insulated. That's kind of, and that, I mean that kind of in a good way. And that can lead to growth. Uh, for instance, you know, when I was in college, I had, you know, some close Christian friends. I was involved in like a, a really good college ministry. And so when I was around those types of people with those similar mindsets, you tend to like grow with, you tend to grow with each other and push each other. You, you know, iron sharpens iron, but sometimes we're alone or we feel like we're on the outside looking in. And a lot of times I feel like the father of the demon possessed boy in Mark chapter nine, who says, I believe Jesus, help my unbelief. So what gets us excited about evangelism? What gets us excited about our pursuit of the Lord? I find the Bible to be incredibly exciting. And I hope that like when we do these deep dives on the show, I hope that comes across. It's like the Bible is, is robust and it's, it's multidimensional. It's so layered. For instance, the other day, well, this was a few months ago, actually, but it's a really good example of what I was talking about. I read John eight twelve. I am the light of the world. And I was reading a commentary, kind of just trying to draw out some meaning in this. What does it mean that Jesus is the light of the world? Sure, you know, a light helps us to see. So is Jesus this light that helps us see what's going on around? Is it something that we're attracted to, something we're drawn to? Yes, I think those aspects of that metaphor stand up. But however, if you read closer, you'll see that where was Jesus when he told these Pharisees, I am the light of the world? He was at the Festival of Booths. The Festival of Booths, that's super exciting, right? Well, not really for most of us because most of us don't know what the Festival of Booths is. But it was a Jewish festival and it was in honor of the instance in Exodus chapter 13. And Exodus 13 says this, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of clouds to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. And you you might be thinking, okay, what's the connection here? What's so exciting? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because when Jesus said, I am the light of the world, he was equating himself with the time that God manifested as a pillar of light to lead his people out of the desert. Jesus right then and there was claiming divinity. He's saying that God that led the people, that led his people out of Israel, he was standing in front of a group of of hyper-religious people who certainly knew that story. And the festival of booths was a time when they came together and honored that. They celebrated it. When it, when night fell, they lit up luminaries and and lamps everywhere to to celebrate and to remember this God that led them through. So when Jesus was saying, I am the light of the world, he was saying, I am that light. I am that light that led the Israelites through the desert. And these lights that you have up around 
To celebrate and honor that, you should recognize I am that light. There is so much depth to the Bible. There's layer after layer to peel back. And just when you think you've learned it all, you've seen it all, you've read it all, there's more to be learned. And the thing that the Bible teaches us, I really hesitate to to say the Bible is clear on this. The Bible is clear on that. Because sometimes the Bible isn't so clear on things that we think it's super clear on. But I think if there's one thing that if you just sat down, never having heard the story of Jesus before, never having read a Bible, there's one thing that I think that you would come away with is that Jesus is enthroned. Jesus is king. And that is the most exciting thing you could possibly read in all the scriptures. That should be what compels us. We shouldn't have fear compel us in our evangelism. So we shouldn't say that you better say this prayer right now or else you're going to hell if you died in a car crash later. You better say this prayer right now. You better come kneel at this altar right now because Jesus could come back tomorrow and wouldn't you be sad if you missed out on that. So, And in my reading of the scriptures and studying of, of other great books and resources, Go listen to the Easter and Resurrection episode, episode 25, if you want more on this. But I think there are also some things that Scripture teaches us about, like, resurrection. God raised Jesus physically from the dead, and that gives us every reason to believe that he's going to do the same for us. Eternity is going to look a lot more like earth than we often think. It's going to be a physical place. It's going to be heaven and earth joining together, not earth destroyed and taking us away to heaven. And there is scripture after scripture to back that up. Heaven is not a disembodied place. It's a physical place. Bad eschatology says the opposite of these things. These things that are pretty systematically laid out in the Bible. And if your eschatology centers around leaving this earth and going someplace else in a disembodied state, then your view on the purpose of the church, I would argue, is very skewed. See, when we think about new heavens and new earth and new creation, a lot of times we think about that being something far away, something that will happen someday, but not right now. But the Bible teaches us that God, when he sent Jesus, he enacted the new creation. And we're living in it right now, and we're invited to be a part of it right now. It's not something that we have to sit around and wait for. And if we aren't moving beyond the personal piety aspect of of Christianity, and what I mean by that is that it's all about your individual standing with God. Not saying that isn't important. I believe every individual human will one day stand before God to be judged. And to those who, who have followed Christ, eternal reward. To those who have chosen not to follow Christ, eternal separation. However, I think we've overemphasized the aspect of personal piety. Personal, and if we aren't moving beyond that, we aren't living a gospel-advancing, kingdom-centered life. A lot of times we think about like the upper echelon of someone who's a Christian is just someone who reads their Bible every day. Maybe if they have a chance to, to talk about Jesus with people that don't believe, they'll do that. The vast majority of people They're not called to vocational ministry, and that's okay because it doesn't really matter. Bad end times views, bad eschatology overemphasizes the personal aspect of salvation. Like I said, it is a personal thing. It's an individual thing. 
but it's not the only thing that matters. Because being truly being a part of the kingdom of God implies being a part of the church, being a part of, and when I say that, I mean the church universal. The church is the bride of Christ. You as an individual are not the bride of Christ. The church is what Jesus is coming back for. As messy as it may be, as much infighting as there may be, as much bad witness as there may be in some particular churches, Jesus is coming back for his bride. His bride isn't perfect, but he is going to make his bride perfect as he gives us all these new bodies. We aren't to sit back and wait until everything's over. We aren't supposed to just say, oh, none of this matters because it's all going to be destroyed someday anyways. New creation has launched already. Jesus currently reigns right here, right now, and that should spark a sense of urgency in what we do. The fact that this earth does matter. What happens in the here and now is important. So that, that is why eschatology is important. That is why we should seriously sit with almost any biblical doctrine, with anything pertaining to theology, I think, and this is a conviction I have for myself, is that we need to sort out what we believe, right? Because ultimately, the, the utmost important thing is that we, we know who Jesus is, right? We have that sweet communion with Jesus. And if that's all you know, good. I'm glad you know who Jesus is. That is what is going to contribute to your eternal life. That is what's going to contribute to, to your fruitfulness here on earth. That's what's going to cause you to live out your calling. But when we are presented with these opportunities to learn about new and different things, theology impacts how we view God. And if there is an aspect of himself that God has chosen to reveal through a certain theological doctrine, if God gave us the mind to think about these theological doctrines, I think it would be important that we pursue that. So, my purpose behind this eschatology series so far, and I think this is kind of going to be the last time we're hyper-focused on it. Starting next week, we're going to do a little something that kind of pertains to it, but not particularly. But my, my heart and my vision and my purpose behind doing all of this, all this eschatology hasn't been like, hey, look at me. I obviously know my stuff. I've read my Bible. I've read all these books and commentaries, and I believe this. You should agree with me. Now, my opinion comes out, but my opinion has also been developed by bad uh, or viewing bad ministerial practices, by viewing how this bad theology adversely affects the way we as the church, we as believers live out the mission of God. So my purpose isn't to get you to agree with me. My purpose isn't to say, if you disagree with me, you're biblically illiterate, uh, you don't know what you're talking about, you know, you're dumb, <laughs> go away. My purpose is to, like, kind of like I said earlier, to show you that the Bible is exciting. Theology is exciting. Theology is daunting, and it's kind of scary, because here's the thing. Our, as Christians, our identity is wrapped up in this, Right? We as believers, we will say all day, every day, 100% of the time, my identity is in Jesus alone. So when we start to like tinker with and mess with aspects of that identity, topics that might kind of cause our view of Jesus and God to change, that is in its very 
essence, tinkering with our identity. And that's a scary and vulnerable place to be. But if we're going to pursue Jesus, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, then we have to pursue truth. We have to know what's true and say, look, even if this truth affects the way I've seen Jesus, there's no shame in saying the way I've viewed Jesus in the past has been wrong. Not that he isn't real, not that he isn't who he said he was, not that he isn't my savior, but there's been an aspect of him that I've viewed maybe in a flawed way. And that's a, that's a vulnerable place to be, but it's an exciting place to be. So if God gives us the capacity to think about these things, what an honor and a privilege it is to pursue them, right? What an honor and a privilege that God gave us minds that can kind of begin to, to teach us, grasp and understand things that tell us about his very character. The Bible is exciting. Theology is exciting. And ultimately, I hope that this series has like stirred in you some kind of affection for pursuing Jesus more deeply. Because when I read N.T. Wright's Surprised by Hope for the first time, when I would, would listen to like an N.T. Wright lecture on the end times, on such things, there would be times when I was just so moved by the love of Christ even in a topic like eschatology, I was moved to tears. I've thought things like, you know, this is this story of redemption that God has set in motion. It's more amazing and vibrant and incredible than I could have ever imagined, than I could have ever thought. This, this, conquer, this conquering Christ who has won the victory over death has done it because he truly, truly loves me. He truly loves his creation, and that's why it's working out this way. And, and maybe, maybe the, the podcast hasn't moved you to tears in that sense, because I'm not nearly as eloquent as N.T. Wright in, in communicating these things, but I long for those moments. I long for those moments when, when like this veil is torn down, and I see Jesus for who he is more truly than I did before. And when that happens, it's an emotional, intellectual experience that is just beyond words. It's beyond what I can describe to you. And I hope that by looking into theology, you can do the same thing. You can see the same thing. And you are deeply moved in your spirit and in your heart as you see Jesus more for who he truly is. And the fact that it's, it's surprising that we can still, in, in this Jesus that we pursue, some of us for, have been pursuing him for years, there are still new things we can learn about him. And I think that's wonderful. So when we study theology, let's do so not to stimulate just our minds, not to just stimulate our hearts, but also to, to think about how it impacts the way we, we reach the world. And studying eschatology has definitely shifted the way that, that I have certain conversations, the way that I go about certain things in ministry, and I hope it has for you as well. That's going to end it for us today. That's all the evangelical filth I've got for you. That's a wrap and that's a frat snap. Next time, I promise I'll do just a little bit better. Later. <laughs>